Well, I think we will get things started. I know a few people are still straggling in, but uh, we do want to make sure that we're done by one o'clock. So welcome everyone to Rudner Law's latest webinar called You're Fired, the webinar. And uh, very excited. This, I know everyone's favorite topic, certainly mine and those of you who know me over in a book, which coincidentally is also called You're Fired. Uh, and we're very very excited to talk to you about uh, this topic, and and I, for one, spend a lot of time talk, thinking about how many different ways we can refer to someone losing their job. Uh, and so we got fired, obviously, and, and interestingly, fired always has the connotation that they did something wrong. Then you got laid off, which suggests it's more of a downsizing and not really their fault. Then you got dismissed, terminated, which to me always brings up Im images of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and of course, it's one of my pet peeves because I always tell people and everyone in my firm knows this, that you don't terminate people, you terminate the employment relationship. Uh, so I try to avoid, refer to someone being terminated, uh, but we also talk about downsized, let go. And uh, just to make sure everyone's awake, uh, you can use the chat function if you wanna jump in there, if you have other ways to refer to someone losing their job, I will be very curious to see them uh, as I think we all are. So feel free to jump into the chat box uh, with that. I'll also remind everyone that we are hoping to have time for Q and A at the end. So there's a Q and A box, Feel free to put your questions in there and we'll do our best to get to at least a few questions at the end of the seminar before, uh, before we're done at one o'clock. Um, so a couple of points before we, uh, before we get into the, the meat of the matter. First of all, um, de-hired, I like that. Uh, as everyone knows in the world of work, the world of HR, the world of HR law, we've, we've seen a lot of changes over the last few years. And there's a few truths that have been consistent and one is that fortunately, we are consistently busy, but unfortunately, that's largely due to people who continue to make assumptions and then take action without a proper understanding of their legal rights and obligations. And the context in which that happens most often is terminations. Coincidentally, that's also the context in which there is the most danger and risk of liability. There are so many myths and misconceptions out there, and I jotted down a few, um, for example, Severance is only a week per year, or paradoxically, severance is only a month per year, or you don't get your bonuses or your other variable comp after you've been let go, or you can't fire anybody for cause in Canada, or you can always fire someone for cause in Canada if, you, for example, you catch them stealing, or you can make any changes to someone's position or duties or title you want as long as you maintain their compensation level. level. All of those myths and misconceptions are common, and all of them are false. Uh, and we'll hopefully dispel some of those over the course of the next hour. So in terms of a plan for today, first plan is don't confuse your Google search with our law degrees. Please don't rely on Google for these important decisions. Please get advice from your HR lawyer before you dismiss, or if you have been dismissed, before you accept the package you've been offered. And if you don't have an HR lawyer, we'll be happy to talk at the end about how you can reach out to us. In terms of a plan for the day, we're gonna talk about severance entitlements, we're gonna talk about termination clauses. We're gonna talk about quiet firing, uh, terminations for cause. Hopefully we'll have a few minutes for Q&A and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. So that's the, uh, the overall agenda for today. Uh, of course, we're a law firm, we have to have a disclaimer. So just a reminder that this is not intended to be legal advice, it's for information purposes only. Every situation is unique. And we do encourage you, if you have a question or a situation you're dealing with, to reach out to us and get legal advice that's tailored to your specific situation. Also, a caution that the information we're providing is current as of May 2023, and especially in the world of termination clauses, with which Alex will be talking about later, these things can change very quickly. 
And lastly, first of all, we will be happy to share the slide deck with you as well as a recording of this session, um, but please do not reproduce them without our permission. Uh, and before I forget, I will remind everyone that this session is uh, qualified for HRPA credits. Uh, and we've been told by HRPA to reveal the, the number of the information you need at the end after we stop the recording, because it's only available for those who attend live. So at the very end of this session, we will give you the information you need to claim your HRPA credits. So with that said, we're gonna start off with the first session, which Brittany is gonna lead us through, all about assessing your severance entitlements, which um, as we often say is way too complicated in Canada. Uh, and it's a lot more than just how many weeks or months you get, it's also what you get during those months and post-termination compensation has been a big issue in the last couple of years. So Brittany, I'll let you take it from here. Thanks, Stuart. Um, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs> so I want to start off by addressing the severance that we've got in quotes on the slide here. And the reason that this word is in quotes is because when we're talking about severance as, as just kind of a general term, what we're talking about is the entire package that's being offered to an employee at the end of the relationship. To make things more confusing, severance has a different meaning in a legislative context. So we're going to talk about that as well. But when we're talking about assessing severance entitlements, we're talking about this from a broad level perspective. Really, the question that we're asking here is how much notice or pay in lieu of notice is an employee entitled to on dismissal? That's going to depend on the type of dismissal we're talking about. So let's move on to the next slide and address that. So essentially in Canada, there's three types of dismissals that you can have. The first is a with cause dismissal, which is where the employee has done something so egregious, it's completely destroyed the employment relationship. Jeff is going to talk about this in more detail, so I'm not going to go into this further here. But the important thing to understand from a dismissal perspective is that this has a huge impact on an employee's entitlement to notice or pay in lieu of notice. If just cause is proven, an employee has absolutely no entitlement to reasonable notice at common law whatsoever. And if the behavior is bad enough, if it reaches this really high threshold of willful and deliberate misconduct, they may also not be entitled to any of even the bare minimum statutory entitlements that they would otherwise get by default. And we're going to talk about both of these items, the common law and statutory entitlements in the next few slides. Um, so that's the first type of dismissal. The second and by far the most common type of dismissal is a without cause dismissal. This is the, uh, it's not you, it's us, we're reorganizing, we're going in a different direction. That's that type of dismissal. So it is by far the most common one that we see in Canada. When an employee is dismissed without cause, they are entitled to reasonable notice. That's that's just the lay of the land. And the default in terms of what their entitlements are going to be is the common law. But this can be changed by contract. And Alex is going to be talking to us a bit about that later. And then the final type of dismissal is a constructive dismissal, which Nadia is going to be talking to us about later. And this essentially occurs when an employer unilaterally tries, tries to make a substantial change to a fundamental term or condition of employment. So an obvious example would be reducing somebody's compensation significantly, changing their title, even exposing them to workplace harassment. These can all be constructive dismissals. When a constructive dismissal is made out, an employee's entitlements are the same as if they were fired without cause, right? So we go right back to, well, I guess it's it's option one because we've got three ones on this slide somehow. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, so it's the same entitlements as if they were terminated without cause. So again, in the vast majority of cases, we are going to be looking at without cause dismissals. So let's go on to examine how do we figure out an employee's entitlements in a situation where they're being dismissed without cause. 
So the first source that we have to look at when we're asking this question of what is an employee entitled to is minimum standards legislation. So there is minimum standards legislation in all jurisdictions in Canada. In Ontario, this is the Employment Standards Act. Under the Employment Standards Act, there are two separate concepts in terms of an employee's entitlements on dismissal. The first is notice or termination pay, which is just a fancy word for pay in lieu of notice. This is basically one week for every year of service up to a maximum of eight weeks. During this time that we call the statutory notice period, absolutely nothing can change. It's like a pause button has been hit on the employment relationship as of the date of termination. All compensation, all benefits, even vacation continues to accrue during the statutory notice period. The second concept is severance pay, and this is where that confusion comes comes in. Severance pay is a term defined under the Employment Standards Act. Essentially, what it's designed to do is provide additional compensation on dismissal to long-service employees, so those are employees with five or more years of service, and who work for large employers, and these are employers with an annual global payroll of 2.5 million or more. So where both of these criteria are met, an employee could also be entitled to an additional week for every completed year of service, up to a maximum of 26 weeks. So in the vast majority of cases, even where you think you have cause to terminate the employment relationship, you are going to have to make sure that the employee is provided with at least these minimum statutory amounts. Again, unless we're hitting that really high threshold of willful and deliberate misconduct, an employee is going to be entitled to these minimum amounts. I keep saying the word minimum. That's to emphasize that this is our starting point. This is not where we're stopping in the analysis. This is just the first step on the journey. So let's keep going. The next source that we're going to look at in terms of determining an employee's entitlements on dismissal is the common law. The common law is judge-made law, so it's law made as a result of decisions of judges in this particular subject area being wrongful dismissal. By default, unless a contract says otherwise, and Alex is going to talk about that in a minute, an employee who is dismissed without cause is going to be entitled to reasonable notice at common law. This is essentially a rough estimate by a court of how long it's going to take an employee to get to their next job, right? Now, as Stewart said, contrary to popular belief, this is not something that's formulaic. It's not a month per year or a week per year. Um, basically, what a judge is going to try to do is they're going to try to look at all factors that are relevant or that could have an impact on an employee's ability to find that next job. Um, and that's how they're going to figure out the notice period. Um, so they can look at absolutely anything, but there's always going to be four factors they consider, including age, length of service, the type of position or nature of position, and just generally the availability of similar employment. Okay, so judges look at all of those factors and trying to come up with this estimate. We do have an unofficial cap of 24 months. That's kind of the maximum in terms of what an employee can receive at common law. We do have some decisions that have awarded more than 24 months, but our courts have been very clear that that should only be happening in the most exceptional of circumstances. Final thing I want to note about the common law notice period is that it includes those statutory minimum amounts that we were talking about on the last slide. So it's not I get my termination pay and my common law. It's all included within the common law notice period. Now, as I mentioned before, with the statutory notice period, the common law notice period functions very similarly in that all of an employee's compensation and benefits by default are to continue or be accounted for during the notice period. So think about what would the employee have received if they were given working notice and they kept working for that whole period. 
that's what the pay in lieu of notice has to reflect unless there's some type of contractual limitation that says otherwise. And the final, final thing I want to say about common law notice periods is that it is subject to the duty to mitigate. And what this means essentially is that every employee has an obligation to take reasonable steps to find new employment after they lose their job. If they fail to take any reasonable steps, the notice period can be reduced. And if they succeed and they find a new job, the former employer basically gets credit for every dollar that they earn at their new job during the notice period. So there's no double dipping where an employee gets paid by an old employer and a new employer at the same time under the common law scheme. So let's turn now to look at a real life example of the common law in action. And of course, I chose the, the scariest case I could find. Uh, so this is the case of Rural and Air Canada. This is an Ontario Superior Court decision from 2022. This was an almost 25-year-old or 25-year employee, 52 years old in a management level position, no employment agreement at all, terminated without cause. So we know he's entitled to reasonable notice at common law. The court assessed his common law notice period at 24 months. So we're at the very top of, of the, uh, the spectrum in terms of what he could be awarded. What's important about this case and the reason I want to talk about it is because everything that was included within the notice period was really, really, really extensive. All of this employee's compensation and benefits had to be accounted for. So just his base salary alone, to give you an idea, over a 24-month notice period was over $230,000. In addition to that, he also received pay in lieu of loss of his benefits, loss of retiree benefits, loss of his pension, loss of bonuses. So there were significant payouts in addition to the base salary to make up his comp over the 24-month notice period. And one of the most significant things that was awarded were these retiree travel privileges, which were valued just this one item at $1.8 million. Now, in this case, the employee wasn't paid $1.8 million in lieu of these benefits. The court actually ordered the company to provide him with these benefits. Now, what was interesting here is that these were not just benefits over the 24-month notice period. What happened in this case is that the employee, when he was dismissed, was just shy of his 25-year anniversary. And at 25 years, all employees receive these retiree flight benefits for the rest of their life. So the court said because he would have hit that 25-year threshold during the notice period, he's entitled to these benefits for the rest of his life. So even beyond just that 24-month notice period. So huge decision which shows how significant the liability can be from a common law perspective when dismissing an employee, especially a long service employee like this. So if we can just move to the last slide that I have here, Obviously, from that case and from everything that we've talked about so far, we can see that if we compare the maximum minimum standards entitlements, like from the Employment Standards Act, against the maximum potential entitlements that an employee could have at common law, there is a huge difference in terms of potential liability for an employer. In addition, the common law creates uncertainty for employers and employees. The only person who can conclusively determine what the common law notice period is going to be for an employee is a judge. So that leads a lot of room for dispute at the end of the employment relationship if you're just basing an employee's entitlements on common law. You're leaving it to the default. So clearly it's in an employer's interest to get rid of the common law entitlements if at all possible. So how do we do that? How do we limit an employee's entitlements on termination and opt out of this default assumption of the common law ruling? Alex is going to talk to us about this a little bit more. I think Stuart has some introductory remarks before we move on. 
Thanks, Brittany. I had to laugh on your last slide because only a lawyer can talk about the maximum minimum entitlements <laughs> with a straight face. <laughs> so thanks for covering a whole lot in 10 minutes. And yeah, Alex is going to talk about uh, probably one of the most important subjects when we talk about terminations. Uh, and I, I've been practicing law, as I've been reminded many times recently, for almost 25 years. And over that time, I've been consistently advising employers to use contracts and specifically use termination clauses. And over that time, we have seen countless challenges to termination clauses, including one very dramatic change in the law that many of you guys will, will know about in the Waxdale case in the fall of 2020. Um, and the reality is the majority of termination clauses that we see are not enforceable, which can come as quite a shock. So Alex is going to explain why you want to have a termination clause, although Brittany's already done a pretty good job of it, but also how you can manage to have one that it's actually enforceable. Thanks, Stuart. Um, so as Brittany mentioned, by default, an employee that's dismissed without cause will be entitled to reasonable notice based on common law. And this can be significantly more than their minimum statutory entitlements. Now, the exception to this is when there is a legally enforceable termination clause that's part of the employment contract. A termination clause can displace the entitlement to common law notice. And this means that rather than receiving common law notice, the employee will receive what the contract says they will receive. So you can see that there is an immense value for an employer to have proper employment contracts which contain enforceable termination clauses. Now the termination clause can provide for a fixed amount that the employee received or can provide for a formula. So for example, a contract could say that an employee receives one month per year of service, or it could say that they receive the minimum ESA notice plus an additional two weeks, for example. But at the very least, a termination clause needs to provide that the employee will receive their minimum statutory entitlements. And if the termination clause can be reasonably interpreted to provide that the employee gets less than that, than their statutory minimums, the termination clause will be found to be unenforceable and the employee will receive their common law notice. Now, in some cases, termination clauses can be beneficial to both the employer and the employee. As Brittany mentioned, there's a lot of uncertainty associated with common law notice. We don't know what it's going to be ahead of time. So a lot of employment law litigation involves the two parties having very different ideas about what the common law notice should be. And the parties can spend lots of time and effort and expense on resolving that issue. On the other hand, a termination clause can bring certainty and finality to the employee's entitlements. It can provide for a formula that can make it really easy for both parties to know exactly what the employee is entitled to. So that can be advantageous to both parties. Um, another advantage for the employee is that in most cases, there is no reduction in their entitlements under the contract due to mitigation. So if a contract provides for a formula of what the employee has to receive upon termination and the contract is silent on the issue of mitigation, then the employee will receive exactly what the contract says, regardless of one, whether or not they find a new job in the meantime, or two, regardless about their what their mitigation efforts are. So, so that, that can, can be another reason why in some cases a termination clause can be advantageous to the employee as well. But in many cases, the termination clause will result in an employee receiving significantly less than what they would have received under common law. And for that reason, it's it's often the job of the employee's lawyer to attack the enforceability of the termination clause. They argue that it's unenforceable and that the employee should receive their common law entitlements instead. The primary way 
for uh, for an employee to attack the enforceability of a termination clause is due to the fact that the statutory entitlements must always be the minimum the employee receives. So if there if the employee would receive less under the contract than under their ESA minimums, it's going to be unenforceable. If there's ambiguity, if there are two ways that a contract can be interpreted, that ambiguity will be resolved in favor of the employee. And resolving it in favor of the employee usually means finding that it's unenforceable. So paradoxically, the court in favoring the employee will often favor the interpretation in which the employee receives less, if that means that it brings their entitlements to under the ESA minimums and 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 causes the contract to be unenforceable. Now, the court won't create ambiguity out of thin air. There, there must be two reasonable interpretations, but if there are two reasonable interpretations, there'll be ambiguity and the one that favors the employee will be favored. Um, another way to attack the enforceability is based on the laws of contracts. So every contract requires consideration. It requires both parties to receive something. So if the employee didn't receive anything in exchange for the contract, that contract is gonna be unenforceable. Um, the courts have said continued employment on it in its of itself is not sufficient consideration. So you, you can't just simply have the contract signed after the employee started if, if the employee doesn't receive anything else. And, and you can't use a, a contract you would use for a new employee for somebody who is already employed. Now, the law is the law on this is mostly judge-made law, as Brittany mentioned. Um, so it's constantly evolving. Um, no two cases are completely identical. So with every new case, we have a Sorry, did Alex just freeze? <laughs> All right, we may need to uh, skip over to Nadia and then hopefully Alex can reconnect. Um, why don't we do that? I'm gonna advance, ask Nadia to do a section. Is that good? Sure, that sounds good, Stuart. Okay, I'm gonna uh, advance us to Nadia's section. All right, well, thank you, Alex, for those wonderful comments. <laughs> hopefully we'll come back to that. Um, but in the meantime, Nadia is gonna talk, as we said at the beginning about constructive dismissal. Uh, we heard a lot about quiet quitting during the pandemic or after the pandemic. We also started to hear about quiet firing. Um, and as Nadia is going to talk about, the idea that you can somehow save yourself severance costs by making someone unhappy so they quit is never a good plan. And we've seen many cases where companies have been punished for doing that. Uh, and also there's lots of mis misunderstanding about what is and what is not a constructive dismissal uh, and what you can and can't change. So Nadia, I'll turn it over to you to hopefully uh, shed some light on that. Thanks, Stuart. Hi, everyone. So as Brittany mentioned, a constructive dismissal occurs when there's a unilateral and substantial change to a fundamental term or condition of employment. So on the next slide, you'll see that the, the term constructive dismissal is defined. And there are also some examples of what that includes. And this is certainly not you know, all the things that can constitute constructive dismissal. It's not limited to things like reduced hours of work or reduced compensation, as well as changes to an employee's schedule, duties, or work location. But a constructive dismissal can occur even if an employee's compensation does not decrease, and it can be caused by a failure to provide a 
healthy and safe work environment, including a failure to address harassment or bullying. Put simply, an employee could allege that they have been constructively dismissed due to a toxic work environment. And as Brittany mentioned, the result is the same as an outright dismissal. So the employee will be entitled to damages as if they have been dismissed outright. Employers may also be exposed to additional liability if they were found to have engaged in bad faith conduct. Now, you may be wondering, what about layoffs? Can a temporary layoff constitute a constructive dismissal? The answer is, it depends. And look, we really cannot do a webinar without saying it depends, because that is a lawyer's favorite phrase, and I'm probably going to say it again later, too. A temporary layoff is essentially a reduction of an employee's hours of work and possibly to zero, which then leads to reduced pay. The fundamental basis of an employment agreement is that the employee will work and the employer will pay them. It's hard to say that it's not a substantial change when an employer says that for a period of time, the employee will not be allowed to work and will not be paid. However, a temporary layoff will not always constitute a substantial change, and it will not always be unilateral either. There are ways an employer can proceed with a temporary layoff without it constituting a constructive dismissal, such as by obtaining the employee's consent through an employment agreement in the first place. Now, before I talk about toxic work environment in more detail, um, Stuart and Alex, do you want to cover the rest of Alex's uh, presentation? Actually, it might make sense. Do you want to finish? Why don't you finish up your sure. section and then uh, we'll go back to Alex when you're done. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So Thanks. on the next slide, I'll talk a bit more about uh, toxic work environment. So in light of the pandemic, we have had many employees as well as employers reach out to us with allegations of toxic work environment, harassment, and bullying even in situations where employees were working remotely. Under the Occupational Health and Safety legislation, employers in Ontario are obligated to provide a safe workplace to their workers. Different provinces across Canada have similar requirements. Now, it's also important to note what is not workplace um, uh, harassment uh, before we kind of talk about what constitutes harassment. It doesn't include a reasonable action taken by an employer or supervisor relating to the management and direction of workers or the workplace. The way it's defined is engaging in a course of vexatious comment or conduct against a worker in a workplace that is known or ought reasonably to be known to be unwelcome. And it includes workplace sexual harassment as well. But this can be a fine line. How you deliver negative or constructive feedback, for example, to an employee can make the difference between legitimate management action and harassment. You could tell an employee your performance on this project did not meet expectations in the following areas, which would be more neutral. But that's very different than telling an employee, how could you screw this up so badly you're such an idiot or something along those lines. You don't wanna say that type of thing. And even providing unfair, unwarranted feedback can be problematic, such as 
blaming an employee for ruining an entire project when multiple others contributed to issues. And the creation of a poisoned work environment is a form of harassment. It can be created in situations where everything appears to be fine to most of the workers. So there could be an environment where it's not unusual for employees to tell each other jokes or email jokes to each other. But sometimes these jokes are at the expense of other uh, minority or less privileged groups. So while many employees might consider these jokes to be funny, harmless, others might find them to be offensive. And if these employees who find the jokes to be offensive are continuously subjected to them, it may ultimately lead to the creation of a toxic work environment. And this can be the case even if they're laughing it off because they might feel pressure to laugh it off because everyone else is, is, is doing so. It's important to understand that you don't need intent to harass someone or contribute to a toxic workplace. And finally, employers have a duty to investigate when they're aware or ought to be aware of workplace harassment, bullying, workplace violence, and or a toxic work environment. On the next slide, I will discuss forcing employees to return to the office and whether that constitutes constructive dismissal. And again, the answer is it depends. So generally speaking, employees cannot refuse to return to the office unless they have an existing right to work remotely, they're refusing unsafe work, they have a legitimate need for accommodation based on a protected ground under human rights legislation, such as disability, or if they're on a leave of absence. What does this mean in practice? Well, let's say you're an employer, you have allowed your employees to work from home during the pandemic. Suppose there was no communication regarding expectations to return to in-person work in the future. The risk is that the right to work from home may have become or may become entrenched at some point. And there's no hard and fast rule about this, but we've helped many of our employer clients avoid circumstances where they lose the ability to dictate where their employees will work from simply due to a lack of proper communication and documentation. Effective communication and documentation are really your best friends to maximize your rights and flexibility and minimize potential liability. And we can certainly help you to do that. Employers must also be mindful of the potential need for accommodation. Employers are obligated to accommodate an employee's legitimate needs based on a protected ground under human rights legislation, such as disability or family status, but they're not obligated to accommodate an employee's preference. They're only obligated to provide a reasonable accommodation. So if work from home is the only reasonable accommodation under the circumstances, then the employer generally can't force the employee to return to the office. But if it's simply the employee's preference, then an employer can impose return to the office. And again, we help both employers and employees navigate the accommodation process to ensure they meet their obligations and get what they're entitled to. So feel free to reach out to us if you're in that situation. On the next slide, I will close off by discussing some practice tips so you can maximize your rights and minimize your liabilities. First, prevent issues before they arise by practicing respectful and effective communication. Foster a workplace where respect is valued. Second, document, document, document. This is key. We say this pretty much in every webinar because it is so important. 
Remember that employment relationships are legal relationships at the end of the day, so you should use contracts and policies strategically. You can limit your liability substantially by having effective contracts and policies in place, and we regularly help our clients do that, so don't hesitate to reach out to us. Now, I talked about changes before, making changes to fundamental terms of employment agreements, in light of constructive dismissal. So how do you make changes as an employer without attracting constructive dismissal claims? What we usually say is you want to flex your discretion muscles. You want to ensure that your contracts give you flexibility to make changes. Include wording in the contract clearly giving the organization discretion to make changes and noting that it will not constitute a constructive dismissal. Get written consent for changes. Give appropriate notice for changes, and finally, seek legal advice from an employment lawyer before doing anything that may have legal implications. Now, I'm going to pass it back to Alex to complete the remainder of his uh, portion. Awesome. Thanks, Nadia. And Alex, I'll uh, try to remember which slide we left off at, so you may have to tell me when to stop. Did we lose Alex? I don't see. I think we lost off again. <laughs> All right, we're we're destined not to talk about the attack on termination clauses, so we're going to have to uh, come back to that later. Uh, so, um, Jeff, what do you think about talking about just cause for dismissal? I, I think I'm as enthusiastic as my uh, my bitmoji right there, Stuart. Excellent. Well, at least you're not just dropping off completely when I suggest that you start talking. So. This <laughs> By way of a really quick introduction, this is obviously a topic that is near and dear to my heart because I've written a book on it and coincidentally called your fired, as I said. It's two volumes. The second volume is all case summaries, and I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Jeff, who has been doing the case summaries for the last couple of years. Um, and of course, the book is two volumes. Each volume is about yay thick. Jeff, you've got about 10 minutes to explain it fully and completely. Okay, I'm going to try to do it in six. Um, and j just to be clear, I am substantially more enthusiastic to discuss this my, than my Bitmoji conveys. I didn't realize how kind of half-lit he was looking today. So I am quite enthusiastic to discuss. So let's talk about dismissal for cause. And the first question is, what is dismissal for cause? Um, this is rightfully described as being the capital punishment of the employment relationship. Uh, the courts treat it as seriously as, obviously, something as serious as capital punishment. And it represents... Uh, a fundamental hard end to the employment relationship and a fundamental hard end to the employer's obligations to the employee pursuant to the employment relationship. This is going to occur where the employee, through their conduct, has fundamentally breached the employment contract with the employer. And what kind of conduct are we talking about in that circumstance? This is going to fall under two broad categories. It's going to be conduct that's inconsistent with the employee's obligations to the employer. This is typically going to be obligations at common law, stuff like uh, loyalty to the employer or maintaining confidentiality over information and so forth, or, or conduct that's damaging to the employer's business. And this can be conduct that negatively impacts the employer's operations, its reputation, or even causes impact to the employer's customers by virtue of being associated with the employer, by extension, by virtue of, being of the employer being associated with the employee. As Brittany mentioned, what this means in practical terms is that the employee has no entitlement to reasonable notice at common law. Uh, there may be an entitlement under the employment standards legislation, depending on the jurisdiction. Um, in Ontario, as 
Brittany went through in, in detail, uh, there is a distinction between the uh, dismissal for cause and dismissal for willful misconduct. The stand standards are substantially different. Um, I don't want to get into the weeds, so I won't go into a, a detail today. Suffice to say, they are different. Um, so what kind of conduct are we talking about here? Uh, we go through this uh, briefly on the next slide. If you would, Stuart, thank you. Um, so as Nadia mentioned, the classic lawyer example is it depends. And uh, I would be remiss if I did not say that it depends. But the type of conduct we're looking at is going to be stuff like is falling under those two headings, as I indicated before, uh, conduct that's inconsistent with the employee's obligations or damaging to the employer's business. This can include off-duty conduct. So, and this can range, and just to spend a second on this, this can range uh, uh, in terms of a broad scope of items. So stuff like you're seen at a Jays game at the Skydome throwing a can of beer on the field, or you've tweeted a number of things out um, that are negative and can Tra track you back to the employer. This could potentially substantiate a dismissal for cause. Um, is there a hard and fast rule in this respect? No, absolutely. Seriously, it depends. Okay, there are no absolute rules. There's no such. There's nothing set in stone. Also, to be clear, there is no such thing as near cause. Uh, a cause dismissal is a binary concept. You either dismissed for cause or not dismissed for cause. With one exception, which I'm going to talk about at the end of my uh, little spiel here. Um, you cannot, the employer cannot dismiss an employee without cause. And then when the employee seeks reasonable notice after the fact or challenges or dismissal after the fact, the employer cannot subsequently state, well, we almost had cause and that's going to come into play here. This can in fact be used as a defense to certain allegations by the employee in the subsequent litigation. But again, that's getting into the weeds. Uh, but suffice to say, you cannot dismiss and cite near cause. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so how do we determine if a dismissal for cause is plausible? Um, what we do is apply the contextual analysis, which is set out on the next slide. So um, as with calculating reasonable notice, an assessment of an employer's entitlement to dismiss an employee for cause is going to require a nuanced and comprehensive assessment, not only of the misconduct that the employee is alleged of having carried out. And to be clear, an employer should have clear understanding of the alleged misconduct. It should not be based on rumors, nuance, anything like that. The employer potentially is going to have to be put to the position of having to prove this conduct took place. But the, the conduct on its own is not going to be sufficient to dismiss the employee. You're going to have to take a look at all the surrounding factors related to that employee themselves, such as their length of service, their disciplinary history. And when looking at disciplinary history, whether or not this disciplinary history relates to the actual act of misconduct. So if you have an employee who's been written up three or four times for being late to work, and then they subsequently, I don't know, steal something. You're going to look at the disciplinary history, but it's going to be a contextual analysis in terms of does it relate back to it? Maybe being late and being and stealing something are connected. Maybe they're not. Um, it may or may not be relative to, or may or may not be important to the employee situation. We're also going to look at the nature of the position and crucially the employee's response, uh, which I'm going to talk about further in a second. Just keep in mind that the same set of factors can yield different results so that what's going to constitute cause to dismiss a six-month employee with a string of disciplinary issues is not going to be the same as what's going to constitute cause to dismiss a 20-year employee with a blemishless record and a series of performance reviews, of glowing performance reviews and raises and bonuses. Um, the employee response can be a critical factor. When confronted with a misconduct, how does the employee respond? Do they try to downplay the situation or indicate that they didn't do anything, even though they're faced with the clear evidence of the fact that they did? Or does the employee immediately own up to what they did, acknowledge what they did was wrong, and seek to, 
diminish the impact on the employer. The ultimate question is, can the employee be trusted going forward? And does the employer have the reasonable belief that the employee can be rehabilitated? The ultimate question we want to ask is, has the employment relationship been irreparably damaged? To be clear, and above all else, this is not a thing to be undertaken lightly. Um, the next slide, which Stuart has gone to, thank you, um, shows why. There are risks of dismissing an employee for cause. If an employer dismisses an employee for cause and they cannot subsequently substantiate it, it can create a problem. And there are a number of potential outcomes. Uh, the first is obviously, if the employer can't show that they dismiss somebody for cause and can substantiate this cause, they're going to have to pay the employee's entitlement to reasonable notice. The potential also exists for a no number of other outcomes, depending on the employer's conduct leading up to and at the time of dismissal, even potentially after the cause, the dismissal. If the employer asserted a cause dismissal in bad faith towards the employee, it may potentially result in an award of damages against the employer. Um, a, a four cause dismissal on your record is going to make it incredibly difficult to find another job. The court's going to take this into account and maybe may award make an award of damages against the employer in favor of the employee as a result. Um, recent case law in Ontario says that uh, in a cause dismissal, the court may set aside an otherwise valid employment agreement so that an employer dismisses an employee for cause, can't substantiate the cause, and may try to say, well, look, we had an employment agreement that limits you to your ESA entitlements. I honestly don't know why you dismiss for cause if you have an ESA clause, but that's just how it is. Um, the employer may not be able to revert back to this and only play the statutory minimums. Instead, as Alex indicated, the contract will be set aside and it will be as though there's no employment agreement or no termination clause in place otherwise. Um, a further potential outcome could be a higher cost award. Um, at the end of a litigation, the winning party is typically awarded their costs on a partial indemnity basis. The court retains discretion to award a higher award of costs. This can be up to 90% or 100% of the employee's costs. The, employer, the court will do this where it determines that the losing party did something that merited further punishment beyond an award of damages or award of reasonable notice. Uh, the other thing to think of before you dismiss somebody is the potential for reputational impact, i.e., do you want to wind up as a precedent? Do you want to wind up in Stewart's book? Uh, do you want me to have to write one a case summary about your about the attempted dismissal? Um, it, nobody wants to be a precedent. Nobody wants to be referenced over and over again. Um, ultimately, the thing to keep in mind as well is that it's not necessarily fatal if you assert cause and you can't substantiate it, the court will take a look at why you chose to dismiss for cause and will distinguish between an honest but mistaken assertion and bad faith. So if the employee, it looked like there was cause and it took a court assessing it to determine that there was or was not cause, that's going to be different from an employer who dismisses an employee for cause and goes completely scorched earth to try to ruin this person's career. Um, I hear everybody saying, actually, I well, maybe you're asking this question, but I hear you saying, well, all you've talked about to this point is stuff that's happened before dismissal. What happens if we dismiss somebody and after we fire them, we find that they were doing all kinds of nefarious stuff and we would have fired them for it. Is there anything we can do? As it happens, there is potentially. As indicated, just cause is not only a binary concept and must also be asserted at the time of dismissal. However, there is an exception. However, there is an exception where the employee's misconduct did not come to light until after dismissal. Uh, an example of this is you fire an employee, you didn't have access to their cell phone during their employment, you get a chance to review it, and you notice that they've been sending all kinds of abusive and harassing text messages to their colleagues and clients. If you'd known about this at the time of, or prior to dismissal, you could have asserted cause based on this action. Uh, after acquired cause is the answer to this question. 
This is typically going to act as a defense to a claim for reasonable notice by the employee, and it's effectively going to be the employer asserting that they had they would have had cause but for the employee's conduct during their employment, preventing them from having an understanding of this. Um, to be clear, this is not misconduct that the employer let slide during the employee's con uh, during the employee's employment and chose to have a problem with after the employee was dismissed, except in very limited circumstances. Um, it's got to be something that did not come to light until after the employee was dismissed and which would have substantiated a cause dismissal had it come to light during the employee's employment. Um, so that's a whirlwind tour through cause. Um, I will hand this back to Stuart to explain the rest of his two volumes of his book. Thanks, Jeff. That was great. You did cover a lot. And I'll, I'm going to throw in a really quick plug for our, our TikTok account, which is fairly new and I'm having a lot of fun with. But just last week, we posted on a, a very current real issue on off-duty conduct where the situation in, in really briefly is a teaching assistant who, as she said, had to supplement her very meager income by having an OnlyFans page. And this came to light and now the, the school board is starting to fire her unless she takes it down. So we posted and, and asked people what they thought about whether it's just cause or not. And shockingly, the, the answers were mixed. Um, and so I'm actually going to post a, a response to that probably today or tomorrow with my thoughts. But but what it's going to come down to is what everyone has already said. It depends. Uh, but you can see how in that situation, the conduct has nothing to do with her job, but it impacts. It impacts her job. It impacts potentially the reputation of her employer. Uh, it impacts her ability to do her job if you know parents refuse to have, allow kids to be in her class, et cetera. So it's a perfect example of off-duty off conduct that could result in discipline or, or potentially dismissal. So Alex, I hope hopefully your internet connection is going to uh, with, or stay up for a few minutes. So I'm going to try to get back to where you left off so we can close out the discussion on termination clauses. Um, you may want to remind, I think you were here when we stopped. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, sorry about suddenly leaving everyone. And, and thanks to uh, Jeff and Nadia for stepping up there. Um, so we were talking about termination clauses and, and how the law is constantly evolving. And I was referring to Waxdale, which was this very important case in 2020, uh, the most important finding in Waxdale was that a just cause termination provision that violates the ESA will invalidate the entire termination clause. And that is the case even if the employee is dismissed without cause. The employer doesn't even rely on the, on the portion of the termination clause that violated the ESA. The entire thing is going to be held to be invalid. This is so significant because the majority of contracts that we see that were pre-June 2020 are invalid and unenforceable based on this rule. It, we do a lot of employment law litigation. If we see a contract that's written before 2020, there's, there's going to be a, a high chance that it's going to violate that rule. Um, so another thing that we often see in contracts, especially contracts that were that were written before 2020, is what's called a saving provision, um, a, a, a provision in the contract that essentially says, if the termination clause provides you with less than the ESA minimums, you'll instead receive what the ESA says. In many cases, these saving provisions won't help. Um, there have been cases on both sides of the issue, and it's going to depend on on what the clause says. But in many cases, if there's a, if there's a provision that that clearly violates the ESA, uh, a saving provision is not going to help. But the court isn't going to read up that clause and make it valid for that case. So we can't assume 
that that is going to make an otherwise unenforceable clause valid. Um, the other case that I'm going to mention is from 2022. This was this is the Henderson case where, in, in that case, the termination clause itself would have been enforceable. There was nothing in the termination clause that was invalid, but there were separate confidentiality and conflict of interest provisions, which contained references to termination. And those those references were found to violate the ESA, and those references caused the entire termination clause to be found invalid. So in general, we expect the law to continue evolving. We expect more cases to continue to come out, um, but it's certainly moving towards unenforceability of termination clauses rather than findings that they are enforceable. The main takeaway, if you're going to take away one thing here, is that it's not impossible to have a legally enforceable termination clause, but it is unlikely that your old contract is going to be enforceable. If you have a contract from many years ago that doesn't take into account these new developments, it's likely going to be unenforceable. And the vast majority of termination clauses that are not updated are unenforceable. So it's very important to update your contracts. This could save your company considerable liability. The second takeaway that I would mention is you can't impose new contracts on employees. You can't force an employee to sign. There needs You need to provide some consideration. This could be a signing bonus. This could be increased pay. This could be some other benefit, but you can't simply impose a contract and say, now th these are the new terms. Um, if you're concerned that you don't have legally enforceable termination clauses, or if your contracts needs, uh, need updating, we highly recommend working with a lawyer on getting updated contracts, ensuring that they're implemented the right way, and, and that your company can be protected from significant claims for wrongful dismissal. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. And just to, to add one thing to your very last point, we highly recommend working with an employment lawyer to do that, um, because we see too many commercial or corporate lawyers and others try to and assume that a contract's a contract. So this is really important. And as Brittany's talked about, Alex has talked about, it can cost you substantial amounts of money if you have a termination clause that's not enforceable. All right, thanks again for that, uh, Alex. So I'm gonna fast forward to the end of our presentation uh, and get to questions. Yeah, get to your questions and answers. So. I know we've got a few minutes. I wanted to answer a few of your questions. I, I apologize, we're not going to get to all of them, but I want to do a few of them and then we'll close out and, and get you, let you get back to the rest of your day by one o'clock. And I will, as promised, give you the HRPA code uh, before we do. So I think, uh, I think Nadia, you said you had a question that you wanted to answer. Yeah, I did. So there was a question that came in, which is, as an employer, if you are to change a major condition of employment for an employee, like work location, is it best practice to provide them a notice like ESA minimum notice used in termination? And then in brackets, they wrote one week or eight weeks based on their years of service. So what I was going to say is that you can provide written notice of changes to terms of employment in accordance with an employee's entitlements. However, if the employee does not have an enforceable agreement or an enforceable termination clause to begin with, the employee's notice entitlement might be substantial at common law. So it might be a lot more than the one to eight weeks statutory minimum under the Ontario Employment Standards Act. So you, you would have to be mindful of that. 
Great, thanks, Nadia. And that's a really important point. That it's not just going to be the ESA minimum notice. Oh, right, yeah, I think uh, Brittany had one she wanted to cover. Yeah, so I wanted to answer this question, which was a question about working remotely. So this employee works remotely in Ontario and their employer is located in the U.S. This is a really common question that we're getting a lot of. Uh, what's really important to understand is that you cannot contract out of your minimum entitlements under the Employment Standards Act. So even if your employer is in the U.S., if you are working here in Ontario, you are entitled to the protections offered by the Employment Standards Act, and you will be also entitled to common law notice unless your contract says otherwise. A contract that says that you are working at will and you have no entitlements to notice whatsoever is definitely not going to be enforceable here. Thanks, Brittany. And just on, on a related point, I think it was a question in the Q&A about which legislation applies. I mean, it applies to where the person is working. So even as you said, if you're working for a US company, but you're in Ontario, you're governed by the laws of Ontario. But now with the uh, prevalence of remote work, we're seeing all sorts of new scenarios. So if the company is based in Toronto, but they hire someone who is in Vancouver, then that person is governed by the laws of British Columbia. So I think that's one thing that I don't think people are realizing. And when they have an employee who says, I decide I want to move to wherever, it's Vancouver or the Caribbean, and companies often say, oh, I don't care where you are as long as you get your work done. But I think it's really important to realize that there can be a tax implications and b implications regarding which laws will apply and govern their the employment relationship so bear that in mind i think we've got uh, time for one more question so alex yeah i think you want to take one and it looks like your internet connection is uh is <laughs> it's uh holding up for now um one question is how can you update a termination clause as the law changes with current employees um that's a really good question you need to provide the employees with some consideration in exchange for signing a new employment contract. So you can provide them with a, with a one-time signing bonus. You can provide them with an increase in salary that's tied to the new contract. You can provide something else like an increased vacation entitlement. Um, the important thing is that that is what they are getting in exchange for signing the employment contract. There's no threat that if they don't sign it, they're no longer going to be employed. So if so, it, it needs to be clear that if they don't sign the new contract, the terms of the old contract are, are going to continue to apply and their employment is, is going to continue unchanged. But if they do sign it, they get the signing bonus or the increased salary or, or the new benefit, whatever it is. Perfect. Great. Thanks, Alex. Um, and did we have, oh, Nadia, I think you said you have one other one? Yeah, since we have time, I, I can take another one. So there was a question, what if bonus is discretionary, but typically has been paid every year? Would this fall under common law severance package? So generally speaking, absent explicit language in a contract or policy that limits an employee's entitlements upon termination, they would be entitled to all compensation and all benefits throughout the entire notice period. So if an employer simply labels bonuses as being discretionary, but the employee has typically been paid a bonus each year, that wouldn't really be sufficient to limit your entitlements throughout the notice period. However, there might be additional language in um, the contract or the bonus plan. So we would strongly recommend reaching out to an employment lawyer to review the documents, and then you will get the advice that can help you make an informed decision. Awesome. Thanks, Nadia. And I'm actually going to 
quickly address one as well. One of the questions in the chat or in the Q&A is uh, every time an employee receives a raise, would this be an ideal time to have employees sign a new employment contract? Yes, it is absolutely a great time. And we always say this, as we've talked about, there must be consideration. And the ideal time is a promotion, salary increase, if you're going to offer some new benefits, anything where there's something of value. And you got to make sure that there is a clear quid pro quo. You can't promote them. And then two months later, say, oh, sign this new contract. It's got to be absolutely clear that they only get the raise or promotion or benefit or whatever it is if they sign. But yeah, that's often the best way to do it is to wait until there is an opportunity like a salary increase and then put the new contract in place and make sure the termination clause is enforceable. So I think we're going to uh, to wrap things up so we can guys uh, get you guys out of here by one o'clock. So thank you to everyone for tuning in. Thanks to our team for doing an amazing job and covering a whole lot of information in just under an hour. And uh, just a reminder, and I know it sounds self-serving, but there are so many ways that you can get things wrong and cost a company money, or if you're an individual, leave money on the table if you don't get proper advice. So please, if you don't have an employment lawyer you're working with, then feel free to reach out. There's lots of information on how to reach out to us on this slide. And I should mention, we've all got these really cool QR codes behind us, uh, which will take us to take you to our fancy new digital business cards. So you can also click on those and then uh, and find us that way. But feel free to reach out. There's lots of things, lots of free information that we offer. It's all listed on this slide, including our, we have two blogs that we that we run. We have our LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, as I mentioned. You can sign up for our newsletter, which I would definitely encourage you to do. Um, but as we always say, none of that replaces customized legal advice for your specific situation. If you think you might need an employment lawyer, you probably do. So feel free to reach out to us. And specifically, and I'll, I'll repeat the offer I've made many times, although it's even more relevant these days. If you have a contract that you use currently, send it to us. I will be very happy to take a quick look and let you know if the if contract and specifically the termination clause is offside or if we recommend that it be updated. So feel free to take us up on that. Uh, and I think that's all I wanted to say other than giving everyone the HRPA code. So I am going to stop recording and then reveal that. And then uh, just to answer one more question I've seen, yes, the recording will be available. Yes, we'll be happy to share the slide deck in both cases, minus the HRPA codes. Um, but please, if you want to get them, then just send us an email. We'll be happy to share those with you.